hey, take that Bible. We're starting Jonah this morning, and uh, I'll leave you, leave you a little time to look over. Look over to the book of Jonah. Uh, you can find that if you need to. It's not that you often turn it to Jonah, Amos, um, Obadiah, Jonah. There's the role in there. We are going to exposit through us. I asked Pastor David this week if we've ever exposited from an Old Testament text. And he has done a few things on a broad picture that sometimes were separated by long gaps. And, I, and we don't have to sh- have a show of hands, but I, I just thought this is a first for our church, um, maybe in that sense of, a, of an exposition through an Old Testament book. And I'm even wondering how many of you have sat under an entire exposition of an Old Testament book. And so I come to the, to the prophet Jonah. And we're going to just take it and, I don't know, maybe go about 10 weeks. I'm hoping I can finish it before Christmas. If we don't, then we'll come back the couple weeks after that. We're going to be in Israel, a few of us. It's still not too late for those of you who are planning on Israel, and uh, we're graciously looking forward to what the Lord's going to do with those who go on that trip. But let me not read the book of Jonah. I'd encourage you to read it, but let me read chapter one, okay? You follow along as I read chapter one, and then we're going to dive into the book. It says in Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went aboard and to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the Mariners, it looks like the Marines, then the mariners were afraid and each cried to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, and the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, 
And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. May God bless the reading of his word. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. You you know, when you really read this book, it is, uh, it's a literary masterpiece. I mean, I think if you read it, and I'd encourage you to read it uh, at home this week, the the storyline is rather easy to follow. But the text itself in the Hebrew Bible is really a work of art. And, and, and I don't mean that to, to speak of it as such, but it is the Word of God, and it is a work of art. It is, in the Hebrew language, I think as you'll see as we go forward, highly sophisticated. I mean, in this book, there is hyperbole, there is humor, there is irony, there is double entendre, there is much more. I mean, it is, it is filled with suspense, with drama, it is filled with spiritual lessons for us to learn from. And I would say, I'm just pumped for it. I'm just excited that we can be in the Word of God. I mean, when you think about the book of Jonah itself, it's only 48 verses long, but its truth and its message that's contained in it is life-changing. So part of me wants to just say, buckle up. We're going to be on a wild ride here in the weeks to come. When you look at Jonah and its place in the Scripture, it uh, is the fifth of 12 minor prophets, okay? There's, there's, you know, there's, I said the fifth, there's four major prophets, the fifth of 12 minor prophets, there's four major prophets. Minor prophets are the title given to the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and it's minor not because of its lack of significance, but because of its size. It's going to differ, is it not, than Isaiah and so forth. But when you look at the Hebrew Bible, it's divided up, just a little background, into three sections. There's the law, there's the prophets, and there's the writings. And these prophetic books appear in the prophets where they are known as the 12 or the 12 minor prophets. Jonah is one of them. Now, Jonah is a historical narrative. It's interesting. It's a historical narrative of Jonah's life. And because it's true of what I just said, it makes Jonah unique among the minor prophets. In fact, it's biographical rather than a verbal, prophetical, or, you know, oracle. You can understand that. It's about his life. It's about what God's doing in his life, not about his verbal prophecy. In fact, it's kind of interesting. You don't have to take time. I think he only speaks, you know, preaches five Hebrew words in the whole Bible. In fact, let me show you. Just turn the page, chapter 3. It's... Um, it's in verse 4. He says, Jonah began to go about the city going a day's journey, and he called out, here they are, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his verbal, if you will, prophecy. Those are the only words that he prophesies in that sense, and they're just, I believe, five Hebrew words. Now, it's a story about the prophet rather than a message then delivered by the prophet. Now, certainly, when you begin to study the book of Jonah, some have wondered at the historicity of the book. Some people think, ah, Jonah, he's swallowed by a great fish. And there are many liberals today who don't believe that this book is history. 
Guys like Jay Limburg, for example, describe this story as a fictitious story, he said, developed around a historical figure for didactic purposes, end of quote. So he basically, it's a fictitious story. Still another said that while Jonah, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, has historical features, one said it is theologically irrelevant whether the events occurred. In other words, it doesn't really matter if the events occurred. Um, It's just, it's got historical features, but maybe he wasn't swallowed by the great fish. When, When you continue to unpack this a little bit, there's others who think that the book of Jonah and its purpose is allegorical. In other words, there's a supposed hidden meaning in the book of Jonah. They would say, some would say that the fish is supposed to represent Babylon who swallowed up Israel during the exile as a punishment for the refusal to carry out God's mandate to the world at large. In fact, another writer said there are some who have put forth the theory that, if you heard this one, that Jonah had a dream in a ship while he was asleep during the storm, and the book of Jonah is the account of his dream. So that what you're holding here is, you understand, his dream. It really didn't happen. There's a historical character. It's called Jonah, but it's really, he wrote it as a dream, and it didn't really happen. Still, some relate the book of Jonah to the Phoenician myth of Hercules and the sea monster. It's a rather absurd argument. You say, where do people develop these? Just out of the blue. Just because they don't want to credit the the scripture with historical truth. Others say that although Jonah was a real character and did take the ship to Tarshish, this is is far-fetched, a storm wrecked the ship. Then after the storm and shipwreck, Jonah was picked up by another ship on which there was a fish for its figurehead, and that gives support for the book of Jonah. I mean, it's rather foolish. You begin, you read these, and here are liberals who don't believe in the miraculous, so they'll do anything they can to discredit this book from the scripture because the account where he was swallowed by the great fish. I would say to you, it is not legendary. This book is not parabolic. It is not a parable. It is not allegorical, nor is it popular today historical fiction. Rather, Jonah is a historical narrative on the account of his life. It is literal history. It took place as outlined in the Word of God. Now, several arguments support the historicity of the book. Let me just cite a few of them for you, okay? Number one, when you look at the known cities that are mentioned in the book, including Nineveh, including Tarshish, and including Joppa. Those are known historical cities. There's no reason why we're talking about a historical person who was a prophet with historical cities and then end up with something different than that. Number two, I just mentioned, Jonah is a historical person. He is not a fictional character. Jonah himself lived in the reign of Jeroboam. So everything about it says this is the word of God. This is not parabolic in nature. This is a real truth here. Thirdly, I'd say this, and maybe most important, Jesus 
recognize the historicity of Jonah. In fact, what's interesting just beyond that, it's the only Old Testament minor prophet spoken by Christ. In other words, Christ spoke of Jonah. It's the only Old Testament character who was likened by Christ to himself. Interesting. It's the only prophet, at least I think, that was directly sent to the Gentiles. This is a very, very important book. I'm not taking this lightly amongst us. In fact, I'm thinking when I referred to Christ, you don't have to turn there. If you write it down, it's in Matthew 12. Jesus said this, as an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jesus said, Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights into the heart of the earth. Jesus referred to Jonah, Matthew chapter 12. He said, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jesus said, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus referred to Jonah the prophet. In fact, Jesus boldly declares that Jonah was a sign that prophesied his own death and resurrection. If you discredit Jonah, you discredit, if you will, the Lord and all of the Gospels. If you deny Jonah, you deny the resurrection. It's that clear. And so Jonah is just a wonderful, wonderful book for the simple reason that it contains a historical account of a man who is just like you and me, an account, if you will, of his disobedience, an account of his anger, and an account of his second chances. You'll be surprised what I unveil here regarding Jonah's anger. He was an angry, angry prophet. But God, if you will, overcame him, and he was the God of second chances to Jonah. Now, there's one clear theme in the book. It's not hard to understand. I'll show you the theme right at the beginning. Look over to Jonah chapter 4. Here's the theme of the book. And this is, if I asked you, what's Jonah about? It's about a fish. Well, no, not really. It's not about Jonah getting swallowed. It's about this in 4, 10, and 11. Actually, look at, yeah, 4, 10, and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, And you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, here's the key, I, not, or not I, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, he said there, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now we'll get into that in, I don't know, hopefully before Christmas, okay, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. There's some different views on that. We'll get there. But I think there's 120,000 children in Nineveh who don't know the difference between their right hand and left hand. And and what you're going to find emerge out of this book is the heart and the character and the compassion and the pity of God. And God's pity is compared to Jonah, the Jewish prophet, who had no compassion on these people. So that's the theme, if you will. In the midst of this narrative, God's marvelous compassion is going to shine through. Let me direct you here just before we start to the focus, okay? Jonah himself is not the principal person in the book. God is. 
okay? God is. If you will, the book is about God, not about Jonah. In fact, look back at chapter 1. It says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. God's got the first word. Turn the page and go to chapter 4, verse 11, is the words of God, and should not I pity Nineveh? God's got the last word. Listen, it was God who sent Jonah to the Ninevites. It was God who sent the violent storm on the sea. It was God who provided the great fish to rescue Jonah. It was God who commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. It was God who threatened judgment. It's God who relented in compassion. It was God who provided a vine to shade this prophet. It was God who commissioned a worm to destroy the plant. And it was God who sent the scorching wind to discomfort Jonah. It's all about God. And that's what our church is all about. We exist to exalt and glorify God. It is really a book about God. I love what the old preacher said famous preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, he said this, quote, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they failed to see the great God. It's about God's heart. I think you have in your notes there, a bulletin, in your bulletin, a set of notes and an outline for Jonah. Here's what it's all about, and we'll walk through this. I'll just touch on it. You can see it. It's about Jonah's protest and then God's providence. It's about Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, and then God's protection in that prayer. Third chapter is about Jonah's preaching. He finally did preach, and then it was about God's pardon, and then it's about Jonah's provocation where he got angry, and then namely about God's pity. Grace, Church of the Valley, let's just dive in. Chapter 1, Jonah's protest, God's providence. And as we look at that, I want to look this morning at two features of Jonah's life that remind us of God's love for all mankind, okay? Just two features of Jonah's life that remind us of God's love for all mankind. We're going to look at Jonah's call, and then we're going to look at Jonah's disobedience. And like everything we do, we're just going to walk through the Scripture line by line, phrase by phrase, because the power is in the Word of God. So how can we understand this text this chapter. Let's look at first Jonah's call. Look at the word of God in verse 1-1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, stop there just for a second. What, uh, you'd have to just recognize at the beginning here at the opening line, what a thrilling beginning. God is speaking to the prophet Jonah. The phrase says there that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Perhaps it came to him audibly. Perhaps it came to him in a vision. Perhaps it came to him in a dream. We can't be sure in what way the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But the point is, is that God communicated to Jonah. Now, we do know that Jonah, as it says there, that he's the son of a Mitai. He was the prophet in a northern kingdom. He comes from a place called Gath Heper. It is in Lower Galilee, if you will, about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. That's where he's from. He's a prophet. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom. He's the son of Amittai, and it's not far from Jerusalem. We know that he ministered in the 8th century B.C., 
The only other scripture that we find about Jonah is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And it tells us there that Jonah had a prophetic role during the reign of a king by the name of King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam ruled from about 793 to 753 B.C. 2 Kings 14.25, he prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam. And what he prophesied there in 14.25 of Kings is the expansion of the northern kingdom. And though the northern kingdom was expanding physically, it was in a spiritual downward spiral, if you will, imploding from within. So the word of God in whatever form came to Jonah during that reign, and here's what it said. Look at the text in verse 2. He told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here in the Hebrew text in verse 2, it just begins with two imperatives what we would call just two commands. And you can see them right there in verse 2. Here's the two commands. Number one is arise, if you will. And the second one is go to Nineveh. In other words, God is speaking to Jonah. And the idea is, Jonah, you need to go at once. Arise and go to Nineveh. Now, if you're holding an NIV this morning, for some reason, uh, verse 2 doesn't have the word arise. It just has go to Nineveh. But in the Hebrew, the word and the verb arise is there. But he says, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Nineveh. In other words, God is not asking Jonah to go to Nineveh when it's convenient. So in my mind, this is not like mission impossible, okay? Where it comes on there, this assignment, if you choose to what? Accepted. That's not the case here. This is a prophet of God. This is God speaking. This is a direct command by God to Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. God says to Jonah, this may not be on your preaching calendar, but you got to go and I want you to go now and I don't want you to delay. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now you can see there in the word of God, look again in verse two, he says, arise, go to Nineveh. Stop there just for a second. And Nineveh is the capital for Assyria. So when we speak of the Ninevites, that is the capital of the Assyrian people, if you will. It is on the eastern bank, is Nineveh, of the Tigris River. It's about 550 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Today, you would find that place north of Baghdad, near a place called Mosul, okay? So he tells Jonah very clearly, I want you to get up. I want you to go to this city of Nineveh. Now, when you say Nineveh, it might not mean anything to you. Obviously, it's not part of the Jewish nation. But Nineveh, it's hard for me just even to verbalize it. It was Israel's, not enemies, it was their bitter enemies. enemies. I mean, this was an arrogant country, and not just arrogant, this was an evil and wicked country. You go back into the time frame in history, Nineveh was built, do you remember this guy? By a man by the name of Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, shortly after the confusion at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. 
Now look what he calls it. Look what God says to Noah. Jonah, excuse me. He says, arise, go to Nineveh. And here in the text, it says that great city. Now, it could mean that he's telling him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh's large. I want you to go there. Nineveh, in terms of its population, would be second only in size to another city called Babylon. But when it uses that phrase, chief city, it could just mean, uh, it calls it a great city. Some translations call it a chief city. It could just mean that it was an important city. Sometimes it's translated a leading city. But I just want you to understand, this is a very wicked city. Now, here's what he wants him to do. Look again at verse 2. I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and here's his role, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He's not there to address the social concerns. He's there to address the wickedness of this city. Their evil, Almighty God says, has come up against me. In fact, it was so wicked was the city, if you wrote this one down, and the prophet, the, the prophet Nahum said of the Assyrian nation in Nahum 3.1, woe to the, he called it a bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. So whatever you think about where Jonah's going, lock it in. It's the wickedest city mentioned in the scripture. In fact, it was well known, was Assyria, for their war atrocities, for their brutality that they inflicted on their war captives. I'm going to read you just a little bit here about their history. I'm not trying to make it gross, okay? But I'm trying to give you in your mind where Jonah's coming from, okay? Here's here's what I'm finding in its history. The records of the Assyrians brag of live dismemberment, if you will, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. It's just a, a wicked city. They made parades of heads requiring friends of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so tight that they can be skinned alive. Then the human skins were displayed on the city walls and they put them on poles. They commissioned, did the Assyrians, pictures of their post-battle tortures where there would be piles of hands and heads and feet and heads impaled on poles. Eight heads to a stake were displayed. These people were wicked. They pulled out the tongues of live victims and burned the young alive. Tens of thousands in hundreds of cities suffered this fate for about 250 years of the Assyrians. It was known as the reign of terror from about 883 BC to 612. One Assyrian king boasted of his cruelty. It was right before the time of Jonah. His name was Asher Nasapril II. 
And he said this, I'm just reading, quoting, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built them with a tower before their city. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. I captured troops alive. I cut off some arms and hands. I cut off noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees and around the city. Now listen, that's enough, okay? I'll just stop. Do you understand why he didn't want to go? You just think, well, he's disobedient. He is. But this prophet did not want to go to that city, humanly speaking. And I can only think of a couple reasons. Number one, he was risking his own life to go and preach. Because maybe he thought, gosh, it's great. I can preach on the expansion of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 14, 25. But Nineveh, God, are you serious? And I think he thought, man, if I go there, I'm dead meat myself. Or maybe he thought this, and we'll look at this in a moment. Hey, what if I go? And what if I preach? And what if I'm successful? My own people are going to hate me. I mean, think about that. Hey, Jonah, where are you going? I'm going to Nineveh. They said, what are you doing there? What are you doing there? I mean, when you begin to add to that, in addition, Nineveh was full of temples that were dedicated to the gods called Nabu and Asher and Adad. They also worshipped a god called Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. No wonder the Lord said, look at it again in 1-2, call out against it, for their evil has come up, what? Before me. It became the special attention to God. It reminds me of Genesis 18 when the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which, Genesis 18, has come up before me. So just as the immorality and impurity of Sodom and Gomorrah rose up to the Lord, in the same way, he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, for their evil has come up against me. And I think it's interesting because some think that God set the world in motion at creation and he allows it to continue without his involvement. But Jonah, listen, you're going to find an active God who is not only fully aware of evil, He is acting against it. Now, look what Jonah was to do. It says there, and you see it in verse 2, he was to call out against it. And it demonstrates, does it not? This may sound a little bit counterintuitive. It demonstrates the mercy of God. I want you to go, here's what he's saying, warn Nineveh, because I'm going to wipe them off. I want you to go warn them of the danger And I want you to warn them of the wrath that is going to come. And I thought just for a second, if you're just thinking biblically, what an honor for any prophet preaching repentance in order to forestall the judgment of God. I'm thinking of Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah 18, I might speak concerning a nation or or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent, God said, concerning the calamity that I had planned to bring on it. So it's an act of mercy. 
It's an act of compassion. Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to cry out against it because God is merciful before he judge, judges. But you know the account most likely that Jonah disobeyed the call of God. He flaked big time. He refused and he left in the opposite direction. I mean, I was thinking about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where after he was in the temple and he saw the holiness of God and he saw the seraphim crying out and he said, here I am, what? Send me. Jonah cried out and said, here I am, but I'm not going. I'm not going. And so you ever hear that phrase? When the going gets tough, the tough what? Get going. Listen, when the going got tough for Jonah, he got going, but he went in entirely the wrong direction. So I take you from Jonah's call, secondly, to Jonah's disobedience. Look at verse 3. Very interesting. Maybe it comes alive a little bit more. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And rather than obeying God, he rose and he went, I'll make this clear, in the exact opposite direction. Three times, just in verse 3, you can underline it, it uses the word Tarshish. It's highlighting the disobedience of this wayward prophet. God said, go to Nineveh, and he goes to Tarshish, and then twice mentioned, away from the presence of the Lord. And so rather than obeying God's call, there's an amber alert put out for him on the seaways. This guy's going in the wrong direction. He gets to the local travel agency in Joppa, and he asks, are you running any specials? They ask him if he's ever been on a cruise. He says, I'm a Hebrew, a people of the land. He says, but a cruise sounds great. And so they put him on a ship, and he goes west to Tarshish. One writer said it's entirely possible that the 21st century cruise business to Tarshish is booming. A lot of boats are selling for Tarshish today. But the red flag of warning is the storm that is raging on that route. Tarshish, Grace Church of the Valley, there's no other way to say it. It was the other end of the world. I could say it this way. It was the other end of the known world. Have you you ever seen that commercial by, sure you have, Southwest Airlines want to get what? Away. Listen, he boarded Southwest to go to Tarshish. This guy is on a slippery slope. He flees, the text says, from the presence of God. And listen, instead of going east, east to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles away from where he's standing, he goes to Joppa on the Israel coast. He goes AWOL, okay? He's absent without, I mean, he's just completely disobedient. God says to him, listen, I want you to go east. And he goes west. He's on his way to Tarshish. He was on his way to southern Spain. I mean, really, it is. You know, you hear that phrase, the end of the world? It's the end of the world. Tarshish is at least 
2,500 miles west of Joppa. Today, Joppa is in the city called Jaffa, which is not far from Tel Aviv. It's an amazing account. Look at the beginning of verse 3 again. And I think there's a real play on words here in the language. He says, but Jonah rose, rose to flee from the presence of the word of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. One commentator said that he is going down. You know, you can see that in one three, he paid the fare and went on board. But in some of the language, he's he's just going down. He he can't escape every every movement of him rather than rising going to Nineveh he's on his way down he's like the prodigal son who went into a far country he is running from the presence of the lord and i think you would agree truly this is mission impossible how can you flee from the presence of the lord i mean and we can look at it and it sounds And certainly he would have known this from the scriptures. He's a prophet of God. I'm thinking of Psalm 139. Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from your, what? Presence. If I take the wings of the dawn, right? The the wings of the dawn is probably an expression there of the sun that rises in the east. And as soon as that sun hits, that speed, if you will, of the light refracting across our universe. He just takes this expression, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I, on the other hand, dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. Where can I flee from your presence? He's running from God. It, it, it almost reminds me, does it not, of Adam who hid in the book of Genesis in 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, it says this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They're hiding like, like, like God can't see this. And he's walking. We know God doesn't have body parts. He's spirit. We understand that. But he's manifesting himself in light in the garden. As they come after the sin, they're hiding themselves among the trees of the garden. Listen, you can't hide from God. Your sin will find you out. I'm thinking of the prophet Jeremiah who said in 23, 24, can a man hide himself in hiding places? so that I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Here's Jonah. Instead of going west, he goes, he goes as far as possible as he can go. So sad. Instead of going east, he, he goes west. I remember one time I was in the Philippines many years ago, and I arrived. They told us we were taking a boat. And as I was getting on this boat, I was with a basketball team. We were sharing the gospel. And I, I, I just remember this this week. And I, I was there, and they said, we got to go to this other city and play this team over there. And we thought, great. So I came up to this boat, and it was called, I still remember it, the Rose. And as I'm getting on the boat, I'm walking on what I called the gangplank. And I'm just hearing all all this commotion, yeah, yeah, just stuff's banging and there's noise coming out three floors on this boat. 
there's pigs on the bottom, like 250 what I thought were wild boar. As I'm walking on the, the gangplank, I call it, I look down there, and man, I didn't want to get down below with those. I thought, this is going to be a horrible ride. But I finally got to the top of the rows, and I couldn't sleep. And we're riding on the water, and I'm not sure what body of water that was. And I just remembered the, the, the moon was out, the stars were out, and I thought, I am so many thousands of miles away from the home, my own home. But I thought the Lord knew exactly where I was. And I remember being ministered to by the Lord that even in the midst of an absolute dark night where I could see the moon and the stars, I knew the Lord was there because he's there with us everywhere we go, fully present, right? So here is Jonah. He's trying to run from the presence of the Lord. And so he goes down to Joppa. He goes down in the ship. And then eventually he's going to go down into the sea. And I just say this, that the path of sin is very hard, is it not? I mean, he found a ship, and it's always easy to find a ship if someone's trying to run from God. So look what he did in verse 3. So it says he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Listen, anytime you want to run away from the will of God, you can find a ship on its way to Tarshish, and the devil will make sure that the ship is selling right on time. There's some question as to why was Jonah running? This is ultimately the nexus of the whole book. I mean, why was he running? Why, Why did he flee? God says, arise, go to Nineveh, cry out against it, tell him, in essence, that... Why is he running? And there's some people who, it's kind of funny. They, they say he's afraid. Maybe. Maybe I mentioned the Assyrian brutality. Maybe he was afraid as a prophet of God to go in and do that. I, that certainly maybe can play maybe a smaller part, but that's not his motive. That's not his motive. He's got one motive. There's one reason why he is running. There's one reason why he paid the fare. There's one reason why he's going to the other side of the world. There's one reason why this guy is running from the Lord. You say, what is it? It's real clear what it is. He says what it is. He said he does? Yeah. Look over in chapter 4. He says exactly why he ran. It says in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. In other words, they repented. Is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why he ran. You say, well, why did he run? He ran because he didn't think the gospel ought to extend beyond his people. I think for Jonah, he's thinking compassion to the wicked Assyrians? Are you kidding me, God? Grace on our enemies? I'm out of here. Preach me no way. If I go, 
they may repent because you're gracious, because you're merciful, because you're slow to anger, because you're abounding in steadfast love, and you're relenting from disaster. That's why he didn't go. You know, you know what's fascinating about this? I'm laughing. Do you know what his name means? His, his name means dove. And, you, you know, when you think of the word dove, you kind of think about peace and compassion. But Jonah seems more like a hawk swooping down on his prey in his own denunciation of Nineveh. Get another prophet. Mercy to a cruel enemy? I don't think so. Listen, Jonah didn't want to spare Nineveh. These, in his mind, are pagans. They deserve judgment. Why should we go? Why should we tell them about coming judgment? In fact, I think Jonah's thinking if they ask us if there is a solution to the predicament and we tell them the gospel, they may repent. I mean, is that how you feel? I'm asking. I mean, the, the, the message here contained for us in the 21st century is huge. I mean, when I'm reading the scripture, I'm reading about the compassion of God. I'm reading about the pity of God. And here is, in that sense, at this point, a prophet who wants to say, God, be consistent. Destroy those who are evil and prosper those who are righteous. God, do not save the wicked Assyrians. And maybe somewhere in him, I I can't see it, but maybe, he said, God, this will hurt your reputation. This is going to hurt your reputation. We're a righteous nation, but the Assyrians, I mean, we reach the people we like, don't we? I mean, as long as they don't have lip rings and belly rings and earrings all along the line and tats all over their body and as long as they don't have 45 different colors of hair, okay? I mean, if it's those kind of people, let's not bother with them. Listen, I think we do the same thing today. We've got our own code of the type of people that we think are reachable for the kingdom. And this is all I want to say to you today is that God is concerned for all mankind, amen? He loves all people. He doesn't just like his own people. And even the early church struggled to understand how the Gentiles could receive the grace of God in Acts chapter 10. Think of the implications of this text for the Muslim world. What are we doing for the Muslim world? Or are they just, you know, Go to Albania with us next year. 70% of the country is Albanian, and they don't have a clue what they believe on the Islamic faith. And, and praise God, we've got a missionary couple there that is reaching these people. But listen, we're like Jonah, maybe, and who we think. I just want you to know God's a compassionate God. He's got pity on these people. He's got pity on maybe 120,000 children who don't know their right hand and their left hand. How are we ministering to that? I mean, you heard an announcement today about 
disabilities for Johnny Erickson. What a great ministry. God's got a compassion on those people who often aren't in the same physical privileges maybe that some of us enjoy. God's heart is compassionate. You know, it burdens me. 98% of the money generated in the U.S. is for ministry here. Think about that. I just think I'm so thrilled with what we got going on in Italy. I'm thrilled with what we got going on in Uganda, okay? I'm thrilled with Albania, and I'm praying, God, give us more labors to send forth into the harvest, and we ought to be sending some of our... Listen, the Lord loves those people. And I just want to say to you, how do you see your neighbors? How do you see those whom you work with? Listen, God had compassion. He was sending Jonah. I want you to go preach to them. And Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. And instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to the other part of the known world because he knew God was compassionate. And that what happened, I mean, you'd think this is the preacher's dream. He preaches and in chapter three, the whole city repents and he's ticked off. (laughs) He's ticked off. And I just think as we're Grace Church of the Valley, we've got to have this heart for the world. Amen? Listen, let me just wrap it up this way. There's a thousand things I can say, but I just want you to think on this. God is the pursuer of Jonah. He goes after the wayward prophet, and in the same way, he pursued us, did he not? to bring us to himself. And the hound of heaven came after me. It came after you. It redeemed you when you were not even pursuing him. Praise God. Let's not let it stop with just us. Amen? Let's be these kind of people that go out and love Christ. We'll pick the text up next week.